Morning, church. Morning to those of you also watching with us online this morning. Glad to be with you this morning. We are in a series, as that video introduced, called Rise and Fall. It's the first of a number of, of four series, all in the book of Genesis. This just covering the first 11 chapters. And this morning, we are in another famous passage, Genesis chapter 3. have a copy of the Bible Uh, In your lap on the phone, you can open up to Genesis chapter 3, and we'll read some of these verses. This is, some of you would know this, it's one of the major places in all of the Bible that talks about sin. What is um, this thing called sin? But let me say a few things before we read um, these verses, familiar verses, because they're so familiar, sometimes you just kind of read them and you, you don't even know what you're talking about or what, what, what's really being said here. It's so familiar, the story of Adam and Eve and this serpent in the garden. Let me say a few things about the Old Testament. What you see here is sin is not so much defined, right, as depicted, right? It's, it's in, in the New Testament, I think it's Romans 5, 12, it said, and sin entered the world through one man, and so death Pass to all, right? That's, that's a verse, Romans 5, 12. That's it, a propositional truth. Much of the New Testament is proposition, right? It's a straightforward, you know, uh, a, a description. Through one man, sin entered to the world, and in this way, death passed to all. Pretty straightforward. Here, you don't get a uh, proposition. You get a story, Right? Now, does that mean it's not true? Not at all. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the focus here, remember the first audience being not modern people like you and me, but um, the ancient Israelites living in a whole different culture, is not so much on how, just like we talked about creation, how things happened, but on what they mean. And I'd say the, the, the central point of this passage is that sin inverts life the way God has created it. We talked about this the last two weeks. You get this beautiful picture. It's idyllic, you know, as you read Genesis 1 and 2. And, and then all of a sudden, the world just seems to t- fall off the, the edge and everything becomes tainted. Everything becomes um, distorted. Everything becomes um, messed up in the rest of, really, the rest of the scriptures, right? And what, you, what, what the p- part of the point is that sin inverts life as God decreed it and has forever changed our experience of the world, right? That's what's really important for us to think about. I think it's what Moses is trying to say, because keep in mind, the first readers of this book were the ancient Israelites They weren't never, none of them ever lived five minutes in the Garden of Eden. They were living in the wilderness, in a pluralistic society, in a world that was organized against God, not that much different from our own. And Moses is writing this book under the inspiration of God saying, let me try to help you understand who God is, what his purposes are, and in a sense, where he, not only in the patriarchs, but ultimately in Jesus, is bringing this whole story back going forward, okay? So, Genesis, let's take it, let's read this, Genesis chapter 3, we'll read the first 10 verses, kind of read the whole, not going to read the whole chapter, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, in a message called, The True Nature of Sin, The True Nature of Sin, Genesis 3, follow along. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. 
He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid so I hid now the first thing certainly that would strike us maybe not depends how long you've been in church is you know when's the last time you had a conversation with an animal okay it's a talking animal but I would say this to you guys okay it wasn't strange to the ancient Israelites. Now, in some sense, you know, there's a talking um, donkey later in the scriptures. Jesus rose from the dead. In some sense, you know, miracles are not a surprise to people of faith, if that's your position like it is mine. But I'm talking more about how the story was communicated, right? He could have just said, through one man, sin entered the world, and death by sin passed on to everyone. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 5. But the ancient Israelites get this story, and my sense is, they're not shocked at all. There's no, there's no, there's no, uh, no one, no one raises a question because this is how they experienced and understood truth. Think about this as well. In the New Testament, long time later, right? This, the, 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 this, this um, uh, is talked about the entrance of sin in the world, and Satan is called the great dragon two times in the book of Revelation. Well, where did that come from? I don't see a dragon in this passage. He's also called the devil. That word never happens once in the entire Old Testament. Okay, Satan almost never happens in the Old Testament. The point is that what's talked about, the real force of this passage is that the word through the tempter, in this case in the mouth of the serpent, okay, undermines faith in God. That's the real point. It's undermining faith in God. And how people, what is the true nature of sin? How turning away from God, it's a choice that we make. We talked about covenant, right? Covenant, when God breathed into the, the first um, you know, couple, when God breathed into them the breath of life and they became living beings, God is not a statue. God is not a, you know, a, a immovable force. Either are human beings, just like in a marriage. That's why Genesis 2 ends with a marriage. It's a covenant. And a covenant is a living, breathing um, opportunity every single day for you and me to wake up and say, yes, in a marriage covenant, I'm gonna stay true to what I said and at the wedding day. I don't have to. I make choices every day, but I'm gonna make a choice to honor my covenant. And sometimes it's scary. And sometimes I feel like I'm gonna take a left. And sometimes I feel like I'm gonna take a right. And sometimes I don't feel as much in love with you as I, as I was yesterday. But a covenant is a real-time commitment that you make, right, to, in this case, marriage. The same goes with God. And that's what was painted in Genesis 1 and 2. 
That's why it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, but it's also a beautiful thing. And that's why marriage is the best analogy we have for what it means to be in a relationship with God. Ephesians 5, we talked about it. Because it's not... You're not, you're not in a relationship with a force. You're not in a relationship you know, with, with something that's immovable. It's a living God, okay? And so the nature of sin is this. It's turning away from God, right, in our hearts, in our minds. This is a turning away, the passage we just read. It's a turning away. That does two things. It poisons, in a sense, you might say, the heart or the soul, and it poisons the world, okay? That's what I think is here. So a couple things. What is the true nature of sin? I just want to look at this, a few verses in these time that we have. What, what actually is being said here that is timeless for you and me when we think about our own relationship, our own covenant with God, and what sin is in our lives today? Number one, it begins by believing a lie, okay? It begins by believing a lie. This is what's really important here. And by the way, this lie that's told here in these opening verses is the oldest lie in the book, okay? But the interesting thing about this oldest lie in the book is it's amazing how it's staying power, um, how much staying power it has all the way through to the day in which we live today. What is this lie, Rob? Well, what's what he says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God made. He said to the woman, did God really say? See, the, the beautiful thing about the tempter, the, the, the devil, the enemy, whatever you want to put, name you want to put there, is this. How does he undermine your faith? He does it, not, he does it by suggestion, not argument, right? It's by suggestion. It's simply this thing. Did God really say? Think about your life today. How many people have said to you, right? You know, whether you could be talking about anything, you know, the Bible, morality, you know, any subject, you know, uh, in, in our culture today. What does the Bible say about sin? What the Bible says about salvation? What it says about honoring your commitments? I mean, you name it. And people say to you, did God really say that? And the implication when somebody says that to you is, are you really that stupid, right? That's what they're really kind of, did God really say? But it, see, it's, it's, it's suggestion it's not argument because what the oldest lie in the book simply wants to do, it doesn't want to convince you that you're going to sign some document. You know, I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. I don't believe the Bible is the word of God. You know, that's not the way. That's not the idea. That's not the goal. It's simply to cast doubt to say, does the Bible really an authoritative word? Does God really love you? Does God really have your best interests in mind? Right? And if I can undermine that fundamental idea, right, that God who created me, God who breathed life into me, God that made me promises, doesn't really love me, doesn't really have time for me, isn't really have my best interest in mind, well then it's, I'm going to have the tendency to want to let go of my commitment here and go out there and find other ways to accomplish what it is I need. That's what I think is going on here in Genesis chapter Three. And listen, it's not just what people might say who are not Christians, right? I mean, a lot of people who are not here today, you know, they say, well, why bother, right? I don't really believe this. Does God really say? I don't believe these things. But see, a lot, I think a lot of it's for Christians too. Many times in our lives, people are saying things in our ears, right? 
and say, you know, these, about the Bible, you know, the, the Bible's too stuffy. The Bible's too old-fashioned, right, on sexual morality or on, you know, uh, on any other number of issues in our life, how we, how we manage our time, what, how we serve in the world, whether or not we should be sharing our faith, whether or not we should take a stand for this or that. The Bible's too stuffy. The Bible still st- is old-fashioned. So, you know, did God really say, right, there are certain, you know, we sort of cherry-pick what we want to believe. It's the same idea. It's the oldest lie in the book, and it continues to be told. The number one reason, here's here's my point, that I would say you or I am not living um, fully the kind of life that the Bible says. You ever read the Bible and you go, boy, I love these verses, you know? Everything that is, you know, noble, you know, think on these things or, you know, God will do immeasurably more than you ask or imagine. And you read these and secretly you say to yourself, it's not true in my life. Sounds good. It's kind of great on the, it's a great little sort of on the refrigerator, but it doesn't seem to resonate in my life. The number one reason I would say that what the Bible has to say about the life that God offers us, even in this broken world, is not true for you, is not true for me, is because we wake up believing that what the Bible says about God's love is not real. Did God really say that? We believe that God actually has better things to do, and if you truly want the good life, okay, when the woman saw that The fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom. If you truly want the good life, if you really want what life has to offer, if you're anxious and and, and you're you're fearful about missing out on what life has to offer, if you truly want the good life, God's love, you're not sure that it's real, God's kind of busy, you have to be the captain of your own life and go get it yourself. That's what Genesis 3 is about. She said, serpent said, oh, listen, you're not going to die. God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes are going to be opened and you're going to be like, God is holding back from you. And if I can plant this idea that God is holding back from you, friend, or from me, that I'm going to say, listen, I have to go out and get it for myself. And this lie, by the way, is big enough That's why it's here in the opening chapters of the Bible. To reinterpret your whole life and dynamic enough to redirect your affections and your ambitions. I want to say this too. Why a story and not a proposition? One of the central um, vehicles, one of the central um, components of story, okay, is irony, those of you who are English majors, okay? It's irony, and the Bible is full of irony. In other words, things are not as they appear, right? It's, and there's a great irony in this, this, this is just, this story communicates an irony that a proposition couldn't. When I say to you, sin entered the world through one man, and therefore death passed sin to all, that's just telling you something. It's sort of a sequence that, you know, through Adam and Eve's uh, sin, uh, you know, it spilled onto the human race. It's sort of a fact-based thing. But what you have here is a story And at the heart of this story is irony, and here's here's the irony, that in choosing to replace um, this idea of God's care, that God is going to take care of you, 
And I'm going to exchange that. She says, listen, yeah, you're right. God doesn't really care for me. And that looks really good. It looks desirable. Even though God said, don't do it, it really looks good. And God's holding back from me. I'm going to go after it. You might call it self-fulfillment. That's another way of fancy, new, a, a, a modern way of saying self-fulfillment. I'm going to go fulfill my needs myself. I don't necessarily need God. God's holding back from me. The irony of this is they end up empty, right? They let go of God to go after and fill themselves, but they end up empty. I'm not reading it. Verse 17, if I'll, Cursed be the ground from you. Through painful toil you eat from food all the days of your life. By the sweat of your brow you will eat food. They went out to be full, but of course they came back empty. They came back empty. And let me say one other thing about the great lie. If you've read this whole passage, I didn't read the whole chapter, but what does the, what does the serpent say? God knows, verse 5, that the day you eat of this, your eyes will be opened like God knowing good and evil. That's what God's holding back from him. Now, you can write note, I didn't read it, verse 22. When they actually, when God finally has a conversation with this couple, or he's, God is having a conversation with himself in verse 22, he says, you know what? We have to expel the couple from the garden because they now know good and evil just like us. Now you could say, well, wait a minute then the serpent was telling the truth. They actually, he said, God's holding back from you to know good and evil. And if you eat this fruit, you're gonna know good and evil. And in verse 22, God says, now they know good and evil. We gotta kick them out of the garden, okay? So far, so good. But here's the, it's a, the best, the best lies are half-truths. And here's the half-truth. They did know good and evil. But here's the difference between God's knowledge of good and evil and their knowledge of good and evil. It's kind of the difference between a doctor who knows your diagnosis. Jeez, I know that you have this horrible disease. I'm a doctor. In fact, I know more about this disease than you do because I'm the doctor. But you're the one with the disease that's ravaging your body. See, the difference between the knowledge of God and the knowledge of humanity in evil is it's experiential. You see, that's the difference. That's what God was trying to hold back from humanity. And it's what poisoned everything in the world. I, I listen to this podcast. It's a, it's a great books podcast. And um, a couple, maybe it was not even that long ago, a month or so ago, they were talking about Ernest Hemingway's The Old Man and the Sea. And it's an interesting story, and if you've ever read it, but I, I decided I wanted to read it. And it's not actually a very short novel, um, one of his most famous, but it's the story of this um, Cuban fisherman He's, and his name is Santiago. He's, he's perhaps the most well-known fisherman in all of Cuba, but he's had a very long string of bad luck. And for the opening uh, paragraph of the book says, 84 days in a row he caught nothing, and he had such a string of bad luck that he even lost his crew who went off to another ship. But on the 85th day, his luck breaks. He goes out by himself, way out in the middle of the ocean, and he catches the biggest marlin he has ever caught in his entire long life as a fisherman it's so big three days he fights with it's a beautiful story but it's so big when he catches it that he cannot even bring it into the boat he has to actually tie it in in an interesting way to the side of the boat and then make his way back to land okay but here's what happens if you haven't read the book on his way back 
the sharks start to come out. And one shark uh, takes a bite out. Of course, the, the, the fish begins to bleed. And then he spends the better part of a day fighting sharks, fighting sharks, until he's out of ways to fight sharks. And eventually he has to just stand back. And by the time he gets back to the shore, the only thing left of that marlin is the skeleton. And the woman, the, the scholar who was, I was listening to, she said, the guy said, What's the, what was Hemingway's point? And, she, and this is what she said. Well, his point was this. If you live long enough, you're going to suffer some major losses in life. And the thing you spend your whole life going after ends up being eaten by sharks. That's what Genesis 3 is about, right? Oh, it looks so good and desirable for wisdom and it was aesthetically beautiful and I don't know if the God can be trusted, so this is what I'm gonna live for. I'm gonna go for this. And they end up being eaten by sharks, that is, in their sense of their heart and their life. It begins by believing a lie. Second thing you see in this, what is the true nature of sin? It's a lie that continues to persist. It results in a growing anxiety. This passage, I would say, and I'm building off some other um, great writers, is a theological critique, I would say, of anxiety, right? It's a theological critique of anxiety. In other words, it's telling us, it's telling me to help us to understand, and anxiety is kind of a, a, maybe a 20th century word, but it's, not a, it's a very old problem, right? Some people would say the anxiety, if you go to a dictionary, it says it's, it's future fear, right? That's how the dictionary would say it. It's, it's, it's the fear that we have in our lives that begins to grow because we don't know what's around the corner, we don't know if God's going to take care of us. We don't know if our husband or wife's going to take care of us. We don't know if the sky's falling. We don't know if we're going to catch the coronavirus. We don't know, we don't know, we don't know. Okay? It's an old problem. And it drives us to make some decisions that may be very self-destructive. This passage helps us see the primary cause, let's say the cause below the cause of generalized anxiety in our life. This video for sake of time. Cassie said, if you listen to that video, she said, you know, just before recently in her young life, she said, you know, I was under a lot of stress and a lot of anxiety and I had to, I was so worried about, I, I needed to seek validation that I'm loved. She didn't say that, but I think that's what she meant. I needed to seek validation from others. So I, I, I did everything I could I would give and give and give and give so that these people would not leave my life, okay? Now, I, I think if we're honest, <laughs> that's just not her story. That's our story. The only true and lasting source of validation, I think that's what this passage is talking about, is God's love. And if you say no to him, and you want to go to the culture to get it, okay? The best the culture has to offer you is cosmetics because it does not get to the root of the problem, right? It doesn't get to the root of the problem. They're temporary. The, and only in the end, these temporary measures, whatever it could be, money, it could be drugs, whatever it may be, in the end, it only makes the ache worse and you end up with nothing but a skeleton right, 
to show for all your efforts. Psalm 94, verse 18 and 19. When I said my foot is slipping, your unfailing love, Lord, supported me. When anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought me joy. Okay? Your consolation brought me joy. That's what I think is being talked about in this passage. The true nature of sin finally, in this passage I think, it's experienced as a broken trust. This is really what I think it's trying to say. Sometimes we think of sin, well sin is you did the wrong thing. You broke the commandment. You, 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 you didn't keep your, in some ways of course that is sin. You know, not doing what you say you're gonna do, breaking one of the laws of God, but in some ways the the these beha- to simply see us under sin as, some, as, as a, something that you do that's behaviorally wrong is a very superficial understanding of sin, right? That's really not what's at root here. What's really at root here is it's a broken trust. Now, chapter two ends, the Bible is very carefully written, beautiful. Some would say, I'm talking about, you know, um, academic scholars, that the book of Genesis, people who aren't even Christians, many are, but some aren't, would say it's one of the most beautiful pieces of literature in all of the world, the the book of Genesis. And it's written so carefully, if you pay attention. Here's how chapter two ended. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now that's on purpose. They end this, it ends to say, if you want to understand what life was supposed to be made the way God created it, this is what he wants to say. No one lives in that world in Moses' day or night, we say, I want to give you a picture. Because sometimes we think, you know, the very best we have to offer is what this life has to offer, right? You know, it it looks good, it's desirable for wisdom, this is the best life has to offer. And when Moses is trying to say, and the other writers are trying to say, no, no, God has a whole other world out there. And there is something much better. And in, in God's world, There was a time and there will be a time when people lived, yes, with God, walked with God in the cool of the day. That's a metaphor, but saying walking with God, that God looks right into my heart. He knows even even the dark sins of my own heart, the dark thoughts of my heart, and he loves me anyway. There's no shame. And the same thing ought to be true. Yes, in marriage, that's how we talked about last week, that a man and a woman, that's the whole beauty of marriage, right? Right? That yes, you're sinners, but you can look each other in the, and, and see each other for everything that you are and you become like Christ. You exercise that forgiveness and you receive that forgiveness and this is the beauty of covenant. This is the beauty of, it's no shame. But this is, what it, this is how God created the world where we're supposed to love with, in vulnerability and in truth and in, in, um, in, in character, right? No shame, but of course... The focus of chapter three is the entrance of shame, right? You think of what's the difference between guilt and shame? You've heard this before. Guilt is feeling bad about what you've done. I did a bad thing, I feel guilty. Shame is feeling bad about who you are, okay? That's why you hide, because I feel bad. It's not about what I've done. You don't know what I've done. I feel bad about who I am. See, that's where where this passage, he answered, where are you? Now God, this is a rhetorical question. God knows where, where they are, right? God's, God's a, he's, he's omniscient. Well, I heard you in the garden, but for the very first time. The implication. Okay, we, we don't know how long 
Adam and Eve lived in harmony in the garden, the Bible's written to make a point to us. Don't, don't, don't confuse one chapter with one day. I mean, they could have lived in the Garden of Eden forever, for years, for all we know. All we know is something eventually changed. And he says, well, listen, we used to walk every single day. And God's saying, you know, in a fun, cute way, where are you? I, I'm, I'm on, the, I'm on the, the, the trail, and, I, and you're not where you normally are. Well, I, I, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Chapter 2, verse 25. In other words, now I am feel bad about who I am before you. And by the way, also with her. Right? right? I didn't even read the verse. God says, why did you do this? Her. Immediately, there's a blaming. Immediately, there's a brokenness between husband and wife or between people. Okay? It's shame enters. It's a broken trust. And the nakedness, of course, is it, is it physical nakedness? Sure, but it's much more important. It's emotional nakedness. It's spiritual nakedness, okay? Because the opposite is to be fully known and fully loved anyway. And when, you're, when, when shame comes into your life, the opposite happens, right? You are, you, you're afraid to be known, right? And therefore, you remain Unloved. The real sin here in Genesis chapter 3, it's a depiction, not a definition, is not the eating of the fruit, right? That's, no, it's the doubting of God's love and saying God, can, God apparently, his love isn't real, he's kind of busy, and if I want to achieve some kind of validation, I need to go out and find it on my own. That's the root of all sin. That's what I think the passage is saying to us. For the first time, Genesis 3.10, the man experienced an unhealthy fear in his relationship with God and with others. And listen, fear, I'm almost done, and hiding have characterized the human race ever since. Fear and hiding have characterized the human race ever since. Fortunately for us, God has provided another way. 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid. Why? Because I thought I was going to be punished. Because now I understand I was, I was feeling bad for who I was. Right? This is what entered. This is, this is because of a broken trust. Because I decided that I'm going to be the captain of my own life. I decided that if I want to seek satisfaction, I need to go out and get it on my own. Right? God cannot be trusted to meet your needs or to meet my needs. But the beauty of this story too is, so much more I could say, okay? God is so gracious. You know what? God, God doesn't always keep his promises in this sense. The day you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die, Genesis 2, 17. Guess what? They didn't die that day. 
Yes, there's a spiritual death, and yes, there's eventually a physical death hundreds of years later, and before this chapter's even over. You know, you know what shame? Shame is hiding, and shame also needs to be covered. Their nakedness, not only physically, but emotionally, needed to be covered, but they had no means to cover themselves. That's why they were hiding. But you know what God says? I didn't read it. He finds an animal, and he clothes them. God does for them what they couldn't do for themselves, even in the worst, in a sense, moment of rebellion and um, uh, indifference to the things of God. Even when they turned away from him and believed the big lie, God still said, I'm gonna take care of you. I'm gonna love you. And really, I didn't look at it, some of you know this, already baked in here in Genesis chapter three, God has already started the seed of the redemptive story that we'll begin to look at next week or the week after that in Genesis 4 of saying, I'm gonna do everything I can to let you know that I love you. Covenant's a real-time relationship. I'm gonna keep my promises to you even when you don't keep your promises to me, right? This is what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. Perfect love casts out fear. And you and I... Even though we live in this broken world, we have the opportunity. This is the beautiful thing about being a Christian. Yes, we've spent much of our life in the consequences of a sinful, broken world. Yes, even the best Christians in this room often fall trapped to the biggest lie that's ever been told. But you have an opportunity, I have an opportunity to reset our hearts and say, you know what? God has given us a perfect love in the person of Jesus Christ. And I get the opportunity every single day to reset my heart and say, Lord, forgive me for my fool. Not, not for that I, I, I did A, B, C, and D. Okay, that's okay. But below A, B, C, and D, these things that I did, these, these, these selfish acts, these immoral uh, acts or thoughts, whatever they are, but below these things, of course, is this underlying belief that I couldn't trust you, that you didn't love me. And I'm asking you to forgive me of that and open myself up to the perfect love that God offers you in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. I'm so grateful for the word of God. It's so beautiful and so amazing. And Lord, um, the, the, um, this very old story tells something so incredibly um, present tense for us, Lord, that you created us with a, with a great purpose, to bear your image in the world and to reflect your love in the world. But Lord, we have to experience your love to reflect it. Help us, Lord, in this room today, wherever we are, whether we're not Christians or new Christians or old time or long time Christians, people who have believed the lie at some level in our lives that did God really say he loves you? Did God really say he'd take care of you? It, did God really give you a beautiful, um, uh, uh, you know, authoritative uh, word? Um, Lord, help us to um, repent of our sin, to turn our hearts um, uh, from seeking the things of this world to, you know, Lord, my, my foot has almost slipped 
but in my anxiety, you have given me the consolation of joy. Help us, Lord, to, to know that this morning. Help us to open our lives to that this morning, that we might experience more of the perfect love that casts out the fear in our lives that keeps us from being all that you've called us to be in this our day. In Jesus' name, amen.